there's a lot of opportunity out there for them as long as they're transitioned properly into that, into the new career, whatever it is. We're gonna go out on the field. We're gonna score as many goals as we can. We're gonna have fun. Oh, Becchio, well placed! Come on, Jay! Come on, Jay! It has been my pleasure and my honor to represent you all. This past Saturday was the Kentucky Derby. Every year, the three-year-old thoroughbreds that step into the starting gates at Churchill Downs are horse racing's most elite athletes. Seeing the muscles in their shoulders, the determination of their gaze, the way they pick up speed to 37 miles per hour, watching them respond to the commands of their jockey. There's no denying that these are elite athletes. Like top human athletes, racehorses such as those that race in Louisville every May are monitored very closely, meant to stick to a strict routine in order to achieve optimal performance. It's their whole life from when they're born. Also like top human athletes, these racehorses will retire there will be an after racing chapter for them. And from diet to socializing to how a saddle fits on their back, the adjustment is a big deal. And these horses, they can't even talk about it all. So what can farms and trainers do to support these animals through all the big deal changes? What can the next chapter be for these horses and how can they get there? About 79 miles outside of Louisville, there's a woman who works in an organization that's helping to answer all these questions. My name is Jen Reutz. I'm the executive director of the Retired Racehorse Project, which is a nonprofit organization that tries to expand the market for thoroughbreds after racing. Jen Reutz of the Retired Racehorse Project. And how did you get involved um, with the organization? And what's your story with, uh, I guess, loving horses? Yeah, um, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and was a horse crazy kid, um, rode up riding hunter jumpers and loved horse racing because it was really the only thing on TV with horses. So I got into horse racing that way. Um, and so a lot of the horses I'd ride, you know, in my lessons, and once I started getting into competition and showing a lot of them were off track thoroughbreds, um, cause they were affordable. We didn't have like gobs of money to be spending on horses and off track thoroughbreds are athletic and affordable. And so that's usually what I rode growing up, but I really loved racing. So ended up coming to Kentucky for college and paying for college by galloping horses at the racetrack in the mornings. Um, and so by the time I graduated, I kind of developed a good network and got a job in marketing in the thoroughbred racing industry and was always really interested in the aftercare side too. Aftercare for non-horse people after refers to after racing. So it's the care of thoroughbreds after they retire from racing. Um, since I had 
grown up riding thoroughbreds who are retired from racing. The aftercare always really intrigued me. Um, so I always like retrained horses after they were retired from racing on the side for um, clients of the farm that I worked for. I was a marketing director for a big thoroughbred farm. I'd retrain horses for the farm or for its clients. I'd always help people rehome their race horses and just make sure they got into the right hands after racing and could be productive. Um, and so that's kind of how I got involved with the retired racehorse project. I started, um, they had reached out to the farm I was working at and just wanted to cover what that farm did for aftercare. Since I was a point person for that, um, I was their point of contact. And, you know, at that time, I'd say that was probably 10 years ago. And so it wasn't quite as well known how, um, how many different avenues horses can take after racing and people didn't really know how to navigate that as much. So um, I got involved with the Retired Racehorse Project to try to help them expand their reach and try to um, inform more people about all of the right ways that you can transition a horse from racing to their career after racing. And then it just kind of evolved from there. I went from being a board member to being the executive director, which I am now. And um, the organization has really grown as well and snowballed. So it's um, a national effort that's really kind of taken off and helped to really create a lot more opportunities for thoroughbreds after racing. And when you talk about the right ways to, to train a horse after racing, uh, what are those ways? And I guess what are, branching off that, what are some of the challenges that um, horses after racing experience? So... I would say that it's basically just about informing the connections of these horses as racehorses, their trainers, their owners, you know, the people in their sphere as racehorses, making sure those people just know how to advocate properly for them because the vast majority of people in horse racing are in it because they love horses. So a lot of times like in any circumstance you want to do the right thing but maybe you don't know how until someone tells you and so if people you know they have a horse that would retire from racing they wanted it to go on to be productive after racing but maybe they didn't know how to navigate that um there's a lot of efforts in the thoroughbred industry that have come about not just the retired racehorse project but different efforts to help them navigate that. There's a lot of nonprofit um, retraining and rehoming organizations. Um, there's a lot of individuals who are, you know, trainers whose part of their business model is retraining horses. And so it was basically a lot of educating horsemen on the racing side about all of these options that are available for their horses after racing and helping them find easy connections for that and also just teaching them the importance of like rehoming your horse with a contract so that there's a paper trail and making sure that contract says, you know, that this horse is officially retired from racing and the jockey club now has paperwork that you can fill out to make that official within their sphere as well. And that really helps too, in case, you know, the horse ends up with someone who might for whatever reason, why send it back to the track. If that wasn't the intention of the person retiring it, that paperwork takes care of that. There's just, there's a lot of ways you can properly advocate for your horse from that standpoint, but also we focus a lot on education within the equestrian world. So horses, just like 
any athlete retiring from professional sports, like they are used to a certain diet and a certain day-to-day structure and a certain level of athleticism. And so transitioning them to a new career is different than someone or some animal just starting out in that career as their primary career. So we do a lot of educating equestrians on just the way to navigate that retraining process. Um, And these horses can go on to do so many different things. They can be barrel racers or jumpers or dressage horses, polo horses, therapy horses, police horses. There's a lot of opportunity out there for them as long as they're transitioned properly into that into the new career, whatever it is. And you talk about that structure, that, that athlete life, what is the life of a racehorse like? And why is it such a transition when that life stops? So just like with a professional athlete, I am speaking on assumption. I have never been a professional (laughs) athlete. Um, but I can imagine a, you know, a pro football player, a basketball player, whomever, you know, they have a lot of structure. They get up at a certain time, they work out at a certain time, they eat at a certain time, their diet is very specific. They are mentally and physically and emotionally conditioned for the game they're playing, the sport they're competing in. And it's very similar with thoroughbreds, you know, like they start their mornings early at the racetrack, you know, at the racetrack, they are on a very specific schedule. So they have someone coming in, checking their legs, making sure physically their condition is as it should be. You know, they're fed very early. They go out for exercise around the same time every day. They, their exercise is tracked and very regimented to make sure that their conditioning is on a schedule that fits that horse. So they're not having too much or too little asked of them to help them meet their peak performance at the right time for a race. Um, A horse can race, you know, every two to three weeks, or some horses might need three to four weeks between races. Um, Standard breads, the horses that trot and, and pull a cart rather than having a jockey ride them, they race more frequently because the actual races aren't quite as taxing on them since they're trotting instead of galloping. Um, but it's all just so highly structured, you know, um, and they're cared for like elite athletes, equine versus human, you know, you care for them much differently, but they are treated like elite athletes because they are, and they have a lot of money-making potential for their owners. Like every horse is like its own sports team that someone can have ownership in. Um, so their nutrition, their exercise, everything is the best it can be. And it's very highly monitored. Trainers and grooms check their legs several times a day, usually, and just their temperature, their body condition, just making sure like every hair is in place and there's no lump or bump that shouldn't be there. Um, So they're cared for very well at the racetrack. When they transition away from the racetrack, you know, if they become, you know, someone's riding horse or a competition horse, or just, you know, a recreational pet, something like that, the average person doesn't have the structure that a professional race trainer has. So the way they care for those horses is different. Those horses need to adapt to a new diet. Those, they they don't have the caloric needs that they did before. They have to adapt to a new 
uh, routine. They'll probably be going out a lot more at the racetrack. All of their ex exercise is much more controlled. So most racetracks don't have areas where they can just be turned out in a big field. So they exercise on the racetrack in the morning with a rider. They're usually also hand walked before that, after that, in the afternoon. They a lot of times can eat grass, but they're hand grazed, meaning they're on a lead shank rather than just being turned out in a big field. So when they transition to their next career, they're, you know, that it's just a lot more relaxed of a structure. They might not be fed exactly at the same time every day, or they have to relearn how to interact with other horses being turned out in a group of horses and learning the social structure of that, which sounds silly, but that's a big part of transitioning horses away from the racetrack is like reintroducing them to that herd mentality in a good way. Um, also teaching them just a new way of being ridden. Not as much will be asked of them and they're used to a lot being asked of them. They enjoy it. It's very interesting to like, see and if you're riding them to feel how much they enjoy it but when they're off the track they're not asked to go as fast they're not asked to work as hard and so it's all just kind of a transition for them um but if you take your time and kind of understand how their life was at the racetrack it really makes it easier to transition them to that second career whatever it is so many things that you said that, uh, that I want to touch on. Um, I was going to ask, like, is there an emotional psychological response that the horse has to going from all these demands, like you said, to not, and it sounds like there is, you can feel that they, there's a freedom there, a liberation. Yeah. Well, and at the racetrack, they have the same people handling them every day. A lot of times they have the same groom handling them on a day-to-day -day basis they have the same rider hopping on them during their morning exercise. You know, the jockey is almost never the same rider that rides them morning after morning uh, for the general exercise versus the actual competition. Um, but they get used to, you know, the trainer too. It's just kind of like the people in their sphere. So I always think of it when they're leaving the track, they're meeting new people, they're going to a totally different environment that's much less high energy. You know, you don't have like loudspeakers that you're hearing on the backside because they can usually hear the race calls or announcements being made. It's just a much more high activity environment on the racetrack. So they're taken away from that. They're put in a much more relaxed environment. New people, these new people handle them and interact with them in different ways because they are not, you know, managing a pro athlete they're doing something as a hobby um and it just you know i i always think of it that way like we are taking them away from everything they know at the racetrack and putting them in a new environment that they learn to appreciate and they come to really enjoy having a different job and they kind of you know into your middle-aged you know, life, you don't want to still, unless you're Tom Brady, you don't want to still be playing football, nor can you. Um, so they appreciate that different life, but it's a lot of change all happening at once. So I, I just find being very respectful of that and also appreciating on a different level that they don't understand what's changing because we can't communicate that to them, like in words, we can just show them 
love and kindness and be understanding of their inability to understand why things are changing and where their person went from the racetrack and that kind of thing. I Dealing with it from that perspective, I find really helps you make that transition much smoother for them. And you mentioned middle age, potentially. I wanted to give the listener like a sense of time here, you know, retire athletes, maybe typically retire a high level athlete, maybe in their thirties. Obviously you have student athletes that do train at a high level, dedicated their whole lives to their sport that retire around 22. Um, what are we talking about here for a horse and, and their lifespan and how much racing ends up taking of that? That's a really good question. So I think of it as a high school athlete is comparable to a two-year-old racehorse. Um, Not all horses race at two. A lot of them are just not physically mature enough to race at two. Others are super precocious and they are ahead of their peers as two-year-olds. So I'd equate a two-year-old racehorse more or less to a high school athlete. I would equate a three-year-old racehorse to a college athlete. That's the age that they compete in the Kentucky Derby. Um, That's the age that they're really like coming into themselves physically. And then a four, five, six-year-old, I'd say that would be probably a human athlete in their 20s. Um, So they bloom physically and mature even more. They're stronger, they're faster, they're hopefully more agile. And then Horses on the average age for a thoroughbred racehorse to retire is around five years old. There's some that retires two years old, two year olds. I've got one that raced until he was 11 that's sitting in the field outside of my window. So they can, they can be the Tom Brady's or they can be, you know, a flash in the pan two year old, but that's kind of, you know, they say a thoroughbred age is, uh, three years for every three human years for every one year so like a thoroughbred would probably live to be between 25 and 30 years old that's a typical lifespan for a horse so if you kind of apply that and the way they mature obviously quicker than humans um yeah it's kind of like that two-year-old high school three-year-old college four to five to six is kind of that elite strongest that they will be any perceptible differences in a horse that retires younger versus a horse that retires older, or even, um, you know, the horse that wins the Kentucky Derby versus a horse that maybe didn't ever get to go to the big races. You know, um, we think about like the intensity of the career, whether that's duration or, or level, um, how that might affect uh, transitioning out. Yeah, that's a really good question, Hannah. Um, so I have found that the older the horse is, I can't even tell you how many that I've transitioned from racing to the next career, well over a hundred. Um, I found that the older they are, the more they just crave a job and routine. And it's not necessarily harder to transition them, but they, they enjoy having purpose and enjoy having a job. So they want to learn a new skill and they're happy to learn a new skill, but they, they want to feel that they have something that they can anticipate and look for every day. Um, the younger they are, I think the eat, the more quickly they can adapt a lot of times, you know, everyone's an individual, just like 
just like people. But um, in general, I'd say the younger they are when they retire, the more quickly they adapt. Um, and the more experiences, conversely, the more experiences that they have as racehorses, like if they've raced you know, 20 or 30 times or been to several big race days where they have, you know, the roar of the crowd and a lot of action going on and all of that, like, you know, almost sensory overload, they're basically unflappable by the time they retire because they have, they've been there, done that, and they've got the t-shirt, you know? Um, so I actually think it's a huge asset. A lot of times for a horse to have had you know, a racing career into its four or five, six-year-old year because they've seen and done so much. You know, they travel around the country based on either their their racing abilities, if they're traveling around for big races, or they might travel around just based on the racing circuit. You know, you can't race as much up in the north as you can in the south in the winter, for example. And then you don't want to race in the south as much as you do in the north in the summer because of the heat. So they, they're conditioned to traveling, they're conditioned to adapting to new situations and whatnot, um, but they're also conditioned to a same routine wherever they go and often a lot of the same people. I want to talk about injuries mm -hmm. and, and racehorses. And I think every athlete, I want to say, experiences some level of injury and there's either the surgery, um, the rehab process, the time out, you work your way back. Um, maybe you do retire because of the injury. It's a concussion a few times or an ACL, whatever it is with racehorses. Is it, you get injured and that career is pretty much done or, or what's the difference between, um, having a horse retire because of an injury versus, um, a, a natural retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, horses, just like people, they can get hurt. And it's not, I mean, it's not just in horse racing, it's in any equestrian sport. I mean, it's in the pasture horse. Someone made this comment a couple of weeks ago that horses are either suicidal or homicidal, which was totally tongue in cheek, but it, it was basically to talk about how they have this uncanny ability sometimes to hurt themselves, even when you do everything to protect them or they'll hurt someone else inadvertently, you know? So they're big animals and we're all clumsy, human or horse or dog or whatever. But um, yeah, when they get hurt on the track, just like when they when humans get hurt on the field or whatever we're doing, it depends on, on what the injury is. Because horses at the racetrack are checked over so frequently and so thoroughly, you know, like their legs are felt every day, the grooms, like the grooms that deal with these horses and care for them on a day-to-day -day basis, they know like every hair on that horse. They know the tiniest things that are just that horse and they will notice the tiniest bit of heat. So a lot of times, you know, a good groom will catch something when it is just starting instead of when it becomes a significant injury. And so it's all you know, just a case of what the scale of that injury is. If it's something that's kind of insignificant, you know, maybe a tendon is just starting to get strained or, you know, it could be a simple fact of a horse growing and they're putting different pressure on them that they wouldn't, they weren't putting on them before because of how they're growing. 
and a groom will feel something that's just a little bit different, maybe a tiny bit of thickening or maybe a little bit of heat. They will then alert the trainer and have the trainer look at that. The trainer will then ask their veterinarian to look at it. And veterinary medicine is incredibly advanced. Um, I'm amazed. It's like right on par in a lot of ways with human medicine. So they will spare no expense scanning or x-raying or doing whatever they need to, to identify what an issue is, and then make a determination as to how much rehabilitation time that injury needs. Will that horse be able to come back at the competitive level that it had been at previously? Um, if it can't come back at that level, can it safely come back at a different level? And is that something that the horse's owner and trainer want it to do? Um, for example, my, my fiance and I had a horse two years ago, I believe it was about two years ago. He had an injury in a race that was very subtle. You never would have seen it. It was um, a ligament right behind his, um, it's like right above the hoof behind his leg. Um, it was a ligament that he tweaked. It didn't get torn. We, you know, took a scan of it. He had just, you know, in the race, he just kind of overextended. It's kind of like hyperextending a, a joint or something. And um, we asked the vet, the vet said he could probably come back after three months, hopefully be a hundred percent fine, but he might not be running at the same level that he did because horses are also not, I mean, they're smart enough to know oftentimes that if something hurt, they're not going to try quite as hard the next time. Or if they have so much heart, they'll run past their abilities, just like some of the most elite athletes will overextend themselves. And so we had made the decision it was better to let that horse retire if he could not return safely at the level he had been at before, give him the time off, and then send him on to a different career. In this case, that horse went on to an eventing career, three-day eventing. Um, and with the time off, I mean, he was fantastic and he's moving up the levels as an eventer. So it just kind of, it it's that process that they take when they find an injury on a horse that oftentimes you find it early. You always see, you know, and hear about the big injuries that kind of come out of seemingly nowhere. You know, if a horse takes a bad step on the track and does a more significant injury, and again, comparing it to humans, we've seen humans do that too. You know, they, they just step wrong or they fall wrong or they get bumped and kind of, you know, don't, take the next step the way they normally would if they hadn't been bumped, that kind of thing. And so with those injuries, those require a lot more, obviously, immediate care, rehabilitation. Um, and those horses may or may not be able to come back from those injuries to a racing, uh, like elite athletic level, like a, a racing level. They can often go on to a lower level athletic career. Um, they might not be able to jump, let's say five feet, but they can jump two or three feet or they, there's a lot of athletic disciplines that don't require jumping or hard turns like polo might. There's a lot of things that people do that are just easier on a horse. They could also become therapy horses. They could become um, companion horses. A lot of farms, you know, if you're raising young horses, you need a companion horse to kind of keep a group of young horses in line and kind of teach them how to act in a group. We have one of those as well. So it really depends on the severity of the injury, but it's also incredible just how meticulous all of the care is to really keep an eye on that probably even more than a lot of, I wouldn't say pro athletes, but 
your run of the mill human athletes, we probably catch more in horses than we do in humans. You talk about um, these second careers, therapy horse, pet horse, uh, police horse. Are you looking um, for whoever is caring for these horses um, after and helping in that transition? Do you look for a certain temperament where you're like, this horse would be a good police horse or is it just physicality? Um, yeah. It's a lot of things. And it's like exactly where your mind is going. Temperament plays a huge role on, you know, what that horse might be good at. It's also the individual who's looking for a horse if they're shopping for a horse. Like I personally, the way I ride and I ride um, hunter jumpers, like show jumping, I like a horse that has a little bit of fire and is a little bit more eager to go. There might be someone who really wants a horse that you have to ask to go instead of ask to slow down. So horses, different horses, ride differently, just like different cars drive differently, if that makes sense. So it depends on what the person is looking for. And also, like what the job is, you know, like a police horse, for example, you would not want a hot, fiery horse that's super reactive. Um, but at the same time, if you're doing, let's say, barrel racing, you really don't want a horse that is like the unflappable, calm, has to be pushed forward to do everything. So it depends on excuse me, what the person taking that horse and transitioning them is looking for. And it's always good. I always advise people when they're shopping for horses, it's good to ask trainers about those kinds of questions or ask the trainer if you can talk to the person that rides that horse every morning. Because horses have different personalities, different styles of riding different ways they like to be handled and so the exercise rider that gets on them on a daily basis can really offer a lot of insight as to what that horse is like do they really appreciate a lot of leg cues you know like if you're riding and you're using your legs to help steer the horse rather than just your hands do they like someone who sits deeper in the saddle and has more contact with them or lighter in the saddle are they the kind of horse that you know, needs to get their confidence from the rider and is kind of scared of the unknown or will boldly go and carry its rider with them. So it's like all these things that you never think about, but that really play into how a horse ends up transitioning after racing and what's best for them. So Retired Racehorse Project, um, you guys do a lot of marketing around um, spreading awareness about the needs of retired horses and the various avenues, like you said, that they can pursue. Um, what has the growth and impact of the Retired Racehorse Project been since the organization started? Um, it's been big. <laughs> um, so we started about 10 years ago in 2010, so I guess almost 11 years ago now, with just this idea of trying to create more opportunities for thoroughbreds after racing and re-engage the equestrian community um, to use them in equestrian sports. And so we, we do that in a couple of ways. We put on this event called the Thoroughbred Makeover every year. And it's for thoroughbreds in their first year of retraining after racing. It's a competition with, gosh, probably $135,000 in prize money now. Um, we publish a quarterly magazine that's like the sports illustrated for thoroughbreds in non-racing sports. Um, 
and we do a lot of like clinics around the country teaching people how to transition these horses and so the data to like that was the longest way to get to the answer to your question the data that we're seeing we gather a lot of data, we love data. So the data is telling us that the price people are paying to acquire a thoroughbred after racing is increasing every year. It's increasing by about $150 every year. And we also track, a lot of people will get horses off of the racetrack with the intention of retraining them for that first year or two and then selling them after for a profit. And they'll sell them as, a show horse or sell them to maybe an equestrian that isn't comfortable or doesn't have the time to do that initial retraining, but wants a thoroughbred that has some foundation of training on it. So we're finding that the price that they're able to sell those horses for with, you know, a foundation of a year or so of retraining is going up by about a thousand dollars a year, which is huge. Um, in terms of, of thoroughbred numbers for thoroughbreds after racing, that's really big. Um, and we're also seeing that more equestrians are wanting to get into getting a thoroughbred to compete in equestrian sports over other breeds because they're seeing more and more incentives in the thoroughbred world to do that. There's a lot of horse shows that have either classes specifically for thoroughbreds or added prize money for the top place thoroughbred. So basically it's, it pays to ride a thoroughbred. There's been this big movement in the equestrian world to try to incentivize people to choose thoroughbreds over other breeds. And that's working because a lot of people are starting to take advantage of all of these incentives and really come to appreciate and enjoy the breed. So I saw an event up ahead in October. Um, uh -huh. Is that the thoroughbred makeover? It is. Yeah, it's in October. We had to postpone due to the pandemic. Like I feel like every event had to in some way or another last year. So we postponed the competition last year. And so this year we have basically two years worth of horses competing. So about a thousand horses competing. It's the biggest thoroughbred retraining competition in the world. Um, and people come from, it's in Lexington, Kentucky, and people come from over 40 states. And I think we have four Canadian provinces represented this year. Um, so it's a, it's a big deal in the off-track thoroughbred world. It's basically like the Kentucky Derby of non-racing thoroughbred sports. What's the, what's on the like itinerary for, for, is it a weekend? Or... It is this year, it's going to be um, October 12th through 17th. So it's longer than it normally is. It usually runs Thursday to Saturday. And this year it's running Tuesday to Sunday. Um, so we have the, the preliminary competition for all 1000 horses and the people who are training them. They arrive on site, they have to go through a physical exam, um, just to make sure they're in good condition and good weight and sound of mind and body to compete. And then they go through preliminary competition. We do at the same time, all of that's going on. We do seminars for people about topics pertinent to retraining thoroughbreds. So uh, one of the topics that's usually really popular is um, the nutrition aspect of transitioning a horse and how their nutritional needs change. Um, another one is gastrointestinal health because horse's gastrointestinal system is not the best laid plan. Um, it's 
it's quite the roadmap in a horse. Um, so gastrointestinal health is really important because horses are more prone than most animals to ulcers just because how they're how they're put together. So there's a lot of things that you can do during the transition from racing to the next phase of their lives to prevent or to heal any ulcers that they might have. Um, saddle fit is another big thing because, you know, if a saddle doesn't fit well, they can get back soreness and that won't make anyone happy. And when a horse is transitioning from racing to their second career, their body changes a lot too. You know, if they're learning how to jump or to do, you know, dressage or barrel racing, they will build muscle in different areas and they're not burning the same amount of calories. So they will fill out a lot more. Um, just like, again, just like any human athlete. So the way that the saddle needs to fit them changes a lot in that first year. So we cover topics like that. And we also do a national symposium for anyone throughout the country. And really we live stream it. So throughout the world, who's interested in the aftercare of thoroughbreds. So we try to help give the people who are interested in doing this a good toolkit as to how to do it. You know, if you want to start a nonprofit that helps to retrain and rehome and adopt out for our breads, we might focus on how to have solid financials and how to apply for grants and funding and how to create a board and have structure in your bylaws and things like that. So it's, you know, just all of these things that elevate the whole movement of thoroughbreds after racing. It sounds amazing and so well thought out and like holistic approach. We try. I mean, we've taken a lot of pages out of different playbooks, whether it's different human sports, different equestrian sports. I mean, everything's a collaboration these days, but we try to cover all of our bases. So cool. And obviously you've seen thousands of horses um, in the work that you do and maybe even in your personal life, you know, making the transition. Are there any stories that stand out to you that make you think this is why I do or what we do, what we do? Oh, I have so many. Um, I mean, what I'm working with right now is a really cool horse named Jersey. He's a four-year-old. He retired as a three-year-old last year. He was at a racetrack um, up in West Virginia. His, he didn't have a ton of talent as a racehorse because he just wasn't built for what he was being asked to do. I always say like thoroughbreds are purpose bred to be athletes, but not everyone's athletic prowess presents in the same way, whether you're a human or a horse, some people are sprinters, some people are distance runners, some people jump higher than others. Some people have great hand-eye coordination. This horse, like if you would watch him on the track he had such high action with his legs. So he traveled much more up and down than a horse normally would and not as much forward. <laughs> um, and so a friend of mine who rides up there in the mornings and she's a trainer, saw him on the track and gave me a heads up. She said, I saw a horse today that needs to be a show horse. He does not need to be a racehorse. <laughs> and so she helped me get in touch with the owner who was kind enough. I mean, the horse wasn't making the guy much money anyway. And the guy, when I asked, you know, if he might be willing to sell him as, you know, a riding horse, as a sport horse, the guy was just so happy to find a six, like a potentially successful option for his horse. 
and the fact that someone wanted to pay him money to do that was even better, I'm sure. Um, so that horse retired in December. I think I've probably ridden him 10 times since then. I gave him, you know, the winter off, just to kind of be a horse. He was going through a big growth spurt. So it kind of gave his body time to just grow and fill out and everything. And I've ridden him, I don't know, 10 or 12 times now. And he's just told someone the other day, his answer to any question I ask him is, yeah, let's do it. So it's like, do you want to try to go over this ditch? Yeah, let's do it. You want to try to jump over this log? Yeah, let's do it. He's just so happy to do what's asked for him and like happy to learn new things. And I find a lot of them are like that. It's just, it's a testament to whoever raised him and rode him at the track because he just has a very willing to please attitude. So right now that's my favorite story because he's just a treat to be around every day. Yeah, let's do it. Shout out to Jersey for a lesson a lot of us could be served well by. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I was left completely stunned by this conversation. So informative, so interesting. I had no idea about any of the components of this world. So thank you so much to Jen Reutz for coming on to the podcast. To learn more about the Retired Racehorse Project and how you can watch the Thoroughbred Makeover virtually this October, check out retiredracehorseproject.org. And as always, listener, thank you for listening. Hope to see you next time.